Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, December 17th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, guys, uh, Christmas is coming up next week. Are we almost there? We are almost there indeed. Eight days away. So I wanted to ask you guys before we get going, because I don't think we're going to have a water cooler next week because of the holiday, or if we do, it's going to be later in the week. Uh, What do you guys have planned for, for Christmas or for, you know, the holiday? Uh, last week I mentioned lots and lots of traveling, so that's that's what I'm doing. I'm bounce, I'm bouncing all around the state of Texas uh, for my holidays and uh, taking a few days off, and it's going to be very nice. Uh, I'm going to Florida from the 20th to the 30th to visit with uh, my family and my wife's family who live very close to each other, which is really nice. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, mostly sticking around here, my family who used to live a little bit further away in Illinois have since moved closer, so we don't have quite as long of a Christmas uh, stint away from home as we 
uh, used to do, but things are a little bit different this year because uh, my grandma on my dad's side of the family, who we usually spend Christmas with um, on Christmas Day, she lives in assisted living now, and we used to have it at her house, so now that kind of changes things this year, and we're figuring out exactly how we're going to approach it this year and, and what to do. Uh, I am going to be visited by three ghosts, and I hope they will change my attitude. Spoiler alert, they won't. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah. I feel like there should be a piece of narrative fiction of this like on like the site, like Chris writing uh, a version of the, the, the classic Christmas tale. Um, what are you actually doing, Chris? Uh, probably nothing. I mean, we'll probably go to my, uh, we'll meet with my family on Christmas evening, Christmas day. My wife and I don't really do anything. Maybe we'll go to the movies or maybe we'll just hang out. So it'll be a very low key laid back Christmas. HD, how about you? This is your first Christmas in New York city. Well, I'm actually... Already back home oh, in, in back Northern home. Virginia with my parents, yeah. So I can't spend a Christmas away from my family. It's all, it's always too much of an event because um, I have such a big family. So I'm home early because uh, we have a few like family um, zol. I think I talked about this on the water cool before, but it's like those the death anniversaries for some of our my ancestors. So we have that. Um, and then on actual Christmas day and Eve, we have my dad's side, which is big potluck. And then my mom's side, which is like an eight course meal. That's like sit down and stuff. So it's always very different Christmases, but a a lot of fun. And, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I have not made any plans, but traditionally I've gone to Chinese restaurants on Christmas. So I'll probably do that. I'll probably break my diet for a day and and go to Chinese, um, but I'm I'm sure we'll catch up with it whatever what everybody actually did when we come back from the break next week. Um, l- l- let's get into the water cooler. Let's start off with what we've been doing. Um, Jacob, let's start with you. What have you been up to? Very very little. I hosted a holiday party. It was very nice. My friends are very nice people. If you're listening, hello everyone. But more importantly, I've learned the value of slippers. A few weeks ago, I mentioned my wife got me a pair of slippers for our early Christmas, and now I wear them every single day, all day. So if you've read a slash film article in the past uh, three weeks, it's been edited by a man enjoying his slippers in his home. Thank you very much. I like slippers. Do do a lot of your friends listen to the podcast? Uh, I'm not sure if a lot of them do. I, I know. I was at a D&D game over the weekend, and a few of them mentioned that they pop into the Slash Lemonade podcast every so often. I'm not sure if they're you know, consistent listeners, but they, 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 they do pop in when they see an episode title that they are interested in. I know a couple of my friends do listen, and I'm always like weirded out. Like, Should I even mention things I've been up to that I've mentioned on the podcast because I know they listen to the podcast? So like, am I just repeating myself to them? <laughs> I don't know. Is that ridiculous? Uh, no, I mean, uh, sometimes it's, it's really special to hear, you know, uh, to, to, to know that the stuff you share with them is important enough to be on the podcast. Yeah, I guess. Um, what have I been up to? Uh, I've been trying, uh, I think I've talked about this on the, on the past on the podcast. I am an amateur magician. I'm trying to get together and act to perform at the Magic Castle, not in a professional capacity, but there's like impromptu areas. And, uh, you know, I, I've been doing magic all my life, um, but mostly, you know, for friends in casual environments um, and not as a big, uh, you know, show. 
And so to put together like a 20 minute act is kind of tough, especially because I don't know what my character is. I don't know what I want. I don't want this, you know, act of magic to be just like a series of tricks like some magicians do. Like, you know, coming from the world that we come from of, you know, narrative movies and television, I want there to be kind of like a through line and I want there to be setups and payoffs and I want it to feel like a cohesive bit of storytelling um some of my favorite magicians of all time do that um so i've been kind of like for the last year trying to figure out what is my character what what do i want my thing to be about i've come up with like all sorts of ideas of you know you know one of my ideas was i was going to be this manic that guy that like doesn't have anything together and the magic's just happening all around me kind of thing i don't know i i I think after talking to a lot of friends about this and uh you know some of uh my magic friends who know way more than i i think i've come to the conclusion which i I know probably seems obvious to you guys that i I, i'm gonna just create an elevated version of myself so the the act is gonna be me uh talking or the, the tricks coming organically from things i love like movies and uh i this week for the first time, the, the reason why I'm bringing this up is I came, there's this trick I've been doing for a while that uh, I've been doing with the storyline of fate and destiny. Is it fate? Is it destiny? Is it, you know, do you have choice? And uh, it's been kind of bland. It's like a, you know, <laughs> like, uh, I don't know, I guess probably like, uh, it's like the worst written movie. Um I, this week, reinvented this trick along the premise that, you know, Back to the Future is my favorite movie, which is true, and that I have invented time travel, and instead of using time travel to go into the future to get next week's lottery numbers, I'm using my special powers for a stupid card trick. So, I, I performed that last night at the Magic Castle, and uh, it, I, I don't know, the reaction was insane. So I think I'm in the right direction of where I'm going. I just need to figure out more ways to build the magic around my interests. Like I want to do something with board games, some other stuff with movies. I have an idea for a, a, a trick about uh, movie spoilers, which should probably surprise none of you guys. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't know. It's going well. I'm, I'm, I'm very enthused after last night's reaction, and I, I finally feel like I'm – kind of on some sort of track of where I want to go. But Peter, um, have you ever considered like doing a YouTube channel where you do card tricks and, and film yourself? <laughs> I have put some of my magic on Instagram. You know, J- Jacob, um, sleight of hand is really good in person, but once you videotape it, unless you are exactly perfect, um, the camera is not forgiving in any way. <laughs> And yeah, I guess uh, that makes sense. <laughs> and especially the the magician's tools of misdirection. Like if you are here in front of me and I'm doing a card trick to you and I ask you a question, you will look up in my face and I can control that. But if I'm on a video, you're just looking at the hands. <laughs> so it's, um, I don't know. It, it, there is a whole group of YouTube magicians that do very visual stuff. Like people like Shin Lim, um, who are incredible at that. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm in that uh, that realm, but uh, I don't know. I do want to eventually do this show, and I, th- I think it would be something that slash film uh, readers and listeners would like. I-, I want it to be something like that that would be, you know, for 
you know, are for film geeks. Um, so yeah, so I'm working on that. I'm I'm excited to make some more progress, and uh, maybe someday show you guys. But um, speaking of magic, HT, you went to the Museum of Illusions, which really doesn't have anything to do with magic. It's more of an Instagram thing, right? Yeah, I mean, it was actually pretty fun. And you kind of stole my segue, Peter. I was going to say, speaking <laughs> of magic, but it's okay. Um, it's um, the Museum of Illusions in Chelsea in New York. And it's a museum kind of dedicated to optical illusions as well as puzzles and just cool immersive experiences or rather interactive experiences. Um, the whole thing's kind of like a playroom for kids, actually. There are a lot of children just running around, which I know would like um, – drive Chris crazy but it was a lot of fun actually it, there's like you know an infinity room there are rooms that make that gives you the optical illusion of making you seem larger or smaller than your friends ones that make you look like you're tilted and then like there's one series of mirrors that can make you like basically look like ha- look half of half of you and half of your friend like standing on the other side so there are a lot of really cool tricks like that as well as a lot of puzzles that were very um distracting i think i spent a good like hour just playing with puzzles half the time but it was a really fun experience and yes it it, it is definitely an instagram uh, sort of hot spot there is one room that gives the sort of kaleidoscopic um well not kaleidoscopic effect it's like a sort of uh, an a like gives you this really cool like neon colored shadow and a lot of people were taking pictures there and I realized I had not dressed for the occasion because I was like oh I'm going to the museum I don't have to dress up too fancy but uh, when I when I took when I went to take a picture there I was like wow I look like a slob but it was a lot of fun and uh, oh there's also uh, one of those I I posted this on my Instagram but it was a little like a table where you put your head through and it looks like your body has disappeared. So you have like your head on a platter. So it was really fun. It was good. Um, like so, so you to... posted that photo so that people couldn't yes. see what you're wearing. Yes, exactly. Although I posted my other, um, the Instagram one on like Twitter. So I guess people can see it anyways. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. It's a good like three, two, three hour experience. Um, it's a little, it was a little crowded. Um, especially full of kids who are just like running around and just like falling down half the time because they're because the optical illusions just make you very dizzy. But it was a it's a good time and I recommend it. I have one question and, um, because there's yeah. like this infinity room which you mentioned, which is mm-hmm. kind of like a hall of mirrors where it looks like it just goes on and on and on. Is that the infinity yes. room? I assume. Yes, that's it. So I'm assuming to be like it was just you and your friends in that room, at least judging from your Instagram story. Yeah. Uh, how much time do you get in that room? Like, I feel like is there a huge line? Because yeah, there there is a line. Um, you're only allowed maximum two minutes in the room, but there's no one um like manning it, so you can just kind of chill in there. But then you just kind of get a lot of glares from people when you leave. <laughs> okay, cool. What else have you been up to? Yeah, so um, uh, as since I was in Chelsea, I decided to use the opportunity to, to visit the Chelsea market with um, a few of my friends. My friend uh, was visiting from Boston, so we were hanging out with our other high school friend, and we decided to go to the Chelsea market, which is um, sort of this shopping mall slash street fair sort of um, uh, a- arena area that is located in the former National Biscuit Company factory complex, where, fun fact, the Oreo cookie was 
originally invented and produced. Um, it's this really cool, like, labyrinth and sort of, um, like, almost outdoor mall, but it was it's indoor as well. Uh, it's, it's cool. And, like, um, we had, uh, there's, like, restaurants and uh, stores that are all very cute and kind of twee, very hipster looking. Uh, but it was a good place to just hang out for the afternoon. And I had the most delicious hand-cut noodles there at uh, this stall, I guess you would say, uh, called Very Fresh Noodles. Uh, it's a Chinese um, and Thai style. It's delicious. So um, that was a fun, yeah, that was a good afternoon. I ha- had a lot of, I spent a lot of time entertaining friends this weekend. Um, so it was that. And then like went to karaoke as well. Um, oh, and I also learned that my friend who uh, I was hanging out with, um, she had recently moved to New York as well. And she had moved into an apartment that was, in fact, the ex- the exterior for the Continental in John Wick. And I thought that was very cool. And she gave me permission to, to talk about that on the podcast. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if, um, I can't tell you where she lives, but just it's a very yeah. it's a very fun fact and very, like, New York fun fact as well. I'm guessing they didn't use any of the interiors. They did not. But the exterior apparently is uh, was good enough to be shown on John Wick. Cool. Uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. I've the only... I've- the only one that has been reading stuff this week apparently and uh i use reading lightly because i've been reading comic books but um i've uh, i'm so swept up in into spider-man into the spider-verse that i'm you know reading more of these miles morales ultimate spider-man comics i am uh getting a little peeved i know i talked with jacob last week about these kind of like big crossover events kind of interrupting the flow of the story and it's kind of getting annoying at this point especially with me binging comics i'm assuming you know i'm like 20 something comics in at this point um i assume like you know the these events only come like once a year or something is that correct jacob uh traditionally there's one like one major one a year but they've started up that recently. They have like you know major events or medium events. So it it really depends on what Marvel's up to and how much money they want to take from your pocket this year. Well, when you're binging it, you know it seems like they come up every like five issues or so or whatever, um, and it's it's kind of annoying. Uh, but I'm still into it. I uh, I'm 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 kind of annoyed. I'm, I I love and hate this Marvel Unlimited app. I think I talked about this last week too. Um, you know, it's great because they have almost every single Marvel comic published uh, up until six months ago, and they add you know six months every week. Um, so y- you can access like almost anything, but it's there's so many limitations to it. Like you know, you can't subscribe to a comic to find out when a new issue comes out because they they want you to still buy the comics and also you know i'm following following miles morales through the marvel comics and this should easily do that but there's gaps in which i have to go online and search like you know what is the next appearance of miles morales in marvel comics because like it just like you know just stops at a dead end in this app it's just kind of frustrating um it's almost as if they want me to pay for this app and not actually read the comics. I don't know. Um, and also, after seeing Spider-Verse again, which I'll talk about later, uh, I decided to, you know, I want to see some of these other characters from Spider-Verse. So I tried to read the Spider-Gwen comic, which um, I started at issue number one, and it felt like I was coming into the middle of a movie. 
Like, I didn't know what the heck was going on. This is my other problem with comic books, Jacob. Why Why am I starting at issue one and I feel like I don't know what the situation is? Yeah, the problem with this, and this is something that I wish the uh, Marvel Limited app would, would do and why it's a really crummy app, is that Spider-Gwen, the alternate universe version of Gwen Stacy, who's uh, spider-powered, was introduced in another series, another like crossover event, I believe. And Spider-Gwen number one is a direct continuation of those events from from when we first when we first last saw her and rather than the uh app be having a functionality to say hey you should read this first all it does is present you with this number one issue that like makes you think you're getting a complete story when you're not so it is a combination of really crappy publishing tactics which is pretty number one on something that's not number one but also an app that is not made to actually help you understand the world you're trying to enter in any way whatsoever. So you know what's more frustrating frustrating is they they have like this, you know, news feed in the app where they publish content. Like I'm sure there's writers like us, you know, creating these things. And there's this one post on there that was this week that, you know, launched me into this that had um, you know, where to start off. If you're if you're loving Spider Man into the Spider Verse, you know, what comics should you read? So for Spider-Gwen, it launched me into this issue one where it should have launched me into that miniseries that you mentioned. I don't know. Yeah, it's – this is actually a huge problem not just with the app but with comics in general where um, every single time something needs a boost or they want to sell something, they'll put number one on it. They'll renumber it and make it a new volume. And it's gotten to the point where Marvel does this so often that it's gotten ridiculous because every time it's like, oh, we want to boost this character. We want to make sure we sell enough. We want to – Give this character some um, a, a, some some sort of collectible value. We'll, we'll stick number one on it. Number one has ceased to mean anything, and you kind of have to do your own kind of do homework and research to figure out where do I start. I mean, it's reached a point where they recently canceled uh, a, a, the ongoing Miles Morales um, Spider-Man series and just relaunched it last week with a new number one Miles Morales series. I mean, it's the same ongoing story, more or less. It means a new team, but it's meant to be like, you know, right, one right after the other. But it's still now a new number one, maybe two years after the previous number one. So you have all these number ones and no way of cleanly figuring out your reading order. It is extremely frustrating. The the other thing I learned is I was like, you know, all these other Spider-Man exist in these alternate universes. I assume that these have been characters that have been in the comics for many years now. And it turns out that most of them were invented in 2014 in a miniseries called Edge of the Spider-Verse. So, uh, you know, Spider-Man Noir appears for the first time there. Uh, Penny Parker, the Japanese-American student who pilots uh, pilots the uh, the bio-mech suit thing. I guess it's called SPDR. Um, she was also created for that miniseries by... What's his name? The, the guy that did Umbrella Academy. He's the uh, of My Chemical Romance, uh, Gerard Way. Oh uh, yeah, Gerard Way. Um, so it's interesting. The the only character in that movie, other than Spider Man, that actually has a real comic, you know, back history, is Peter Porker. <laughs> uh, unless you go to the uh, closing credit stinger, which they were, which I won't oh, spoil here. Yes, yes, so <laughs> that that as well too. Um, anyways, I, I think I'm probably taking up enough time with comics. Probably people who don't read comics are probably uh, annoyed at this. So let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, Jacob, let's start with you. Uh, yeah, uh, I caught a screener of Can You Ever Forgive Me, the uh, drama, maybe sort of dry comedy starring uh, Melissa McCarthy. 
And this is a movie that I put off watching because I thought there's no way it's going to be something I would love. And it turns out I really loved it. It is based on the true story of pulling up uh, of Lee Israel, a writer in the early 90s who's fallen out of favor. Her publisher uh, and, and, and agent don't want anything to do with her anymore. She's uh, living on pennies. She's about behind on rent. And she learns about the very valuable world of uh, of celebrity letters, letters written by dead movie stars and dead entertainers. And she embarks on a career to start forging them and selling them for $100 a piece. And it ends up being this really wonderful, funny, and eventually uh, dark in the right ways uh, story of the lowest of low-rent crime. And Melissa McCarthy is absolutely wonderful here. Whenever she's not being directed by her husband to be like a trashy comedic persona, she's such a gifted performer and also just as good as Richard E. Grant as her friend who helps her out and becomes her partner in crime. He's a sort of, uh, they're both alcoholics, they're both gay, they're both you know creative types um, who are barely getting by in early 90s New York. And it's just this wonderful, wonderful dynamic between the two of them. Uh, and watching these two share the screen uh, is just a gift. Like I never thought Richard E. Grant, Liz McCarthy uh, playing these really catty New York city writers who have no money would be as entertaining as it is. But this movie is such a, such a joy. And I, I wish it got a big response. I wish I'd seen it earlier. It's like a champion it earlier. And I really hope that Richard E. Grant, Liz McCarthy get the awards recognition they deserve because this is a truly like, um, nice movie. I feel nice is a bad word sometimes. It feels like it implies that maybe something's lesser, like it just gets the job done just fine. But for a movie about crime and about people who are really sad, this is a movie so full of nice moments and sweet moments and human moments. Like there's a scene where or a sequence where Richard E. Grant helps Mr. McCarthy character clean her apartment. And that sounds like it shouldn't be as like heartwarming as it is, but it ends up like being a great portrait of friends helping friends in a way that I found really moving. And I know I'm not the only one here who saw this. Uh, does anyone else want to pipe in on Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, I saw I think I actually talked about it last week. And yeah, everything you said is uh, 100% accurate. It's a fantastic movie. And uh, it's, you know, like you said, I when, when movies like this happen, it make me a little, it makes me a little upset that Melissa McCarthy is like wasting her talents, but at the same time, she's also making a lot of money. So I guess she doesn't really care that much, but she makes so many like bargain basement, you know, fall down comedies that are awful. And, you know, she has real range and I I wish she had the chance to use it more often because she's so good at this. Well, I also, I'll go and bring up the, the elephant in the room, the movie that everybody saw that we're all going to talk about, and that is uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I was skeptical when Peter and Ben both told me it's one of the best movies of the year. I thought, okay, it's going to be good. I'm going to enjoy this movie, but it's not going to be the best movie of the year. Come on, that's crazy talk. And I saw it, and I can say without hesitation now, it is the best superhero movie ever made. It is in consideration for my top five of the year maybe even top three. I'm really, really battling with myself right now over where it falls. But a movie, strip away that it's a Spider-Man superhero movie, it is has an unreal animation style. I've never seen anything that looks like this before. It, The sense of, the tactile sense of a drawing come to life and rendered into, into a three-dimensional world, 
I've never seen it done this well. It is immaculate to look at. But also the screenplay is such a model of of condensed, um, thoughtful, like witty, smart storytelling. The amount of exposition and character building and world building done quickly and invisibly in this movie is is beyond anything I've seen in a long time. I mean, the animation helps. I think the animation helps them speed things along faster than a live action movie could have, but it is just the level of storytelling on here is I've never seen anything achieve what this movie achieves in terms of the amount of story, heart, character, information, laughs, uh, promise squeezed in every single second here. Uh, I love superheroes, so it's an easy mark for liking this, but it is the craft of the filmmaking that elevates it into being some kind of grand work of pop art. Not just a great Spider-Man movie, but a movie about superheroes as a symbol and about how we understand and contextualize superheroes in our culture and how and how malleable that is and how it takes the idea of there being multiple Spider-Men from different dimensions coming together as a commentary on how Spider-Man can be anything to anyone and how anybody can be under that mask. And it is just this really beautiful, amazing, hilarious thing. And I'm going to toss the baton to somebody else because I know we all love this movie. Who else wants to talk about Spider-Man? I'm going to say, actually, I'm the only one who hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> I need to, I know, I, but just to put that out there. <laughs> In case of spoilers. I think Peter and I have already talked about it. Yeah. Peter, you rewatched it, though. Right? I, or wait, wait. Actually, yeah. Brad, you saw it for the first time, right? Yeah. I did. Okay, so what did you think? Uh, I mean, there's not really much more that I can say that Jacob didn't already say, um, except, like, I, I also was just, just so floored by how great this movie was. It, it was even better than I thought it could be. I, I'd been saying since the, since the first trailer that this movie came out that I hoped that this would be a sort of game changer and open up the door for us to be able to see the kinds of comic book stories that aren't easy to adapt uh, in live action form. And this is a perfect example of that because it, it brings to life characters that fans never thought they would ever see in a movie. And it does it in a way that's exciting and hilarious and original. And it's just, it's such a cool collection of characters. And like, uh, I, I think it does something as far as like diversifying the superhero genre even more so than Black Panther does. Like Black Panther is undoubtedly this crowning achievement, uh, you know, for superheroes because it puts this uh, prominent black cast on display and you know really gives you know uh, you know the you know black demographic something to strive for as far as like the, uh, an inspiration for a superhero movie. This does that, but like on a totally different level. Like it, it's it's for absolutely you know like everybody and like the, the diversity here on display is incredible just as far as not not just the characters but just like the kind of story it's telling and the way you know it it weaves all of their stories together and it's just it's a total totally mind-blowing cinematic experience that is is unique visually it's it's extremely funny uh the the wit here on display from referencing old spider-man movies uh you know to the the unique um, presentation of the the different people with with spider powers and just all of this stuff there it's just it's this perfect package and I, I I honestly couldn't love it anymore. Yeah the um the you know the climactic action scene in this movie I don't think is something that you could even possibly do in live action. Do you know what I mean? It's it's like so uniquely uniquely animated animated you know aside from the you know obviously the style of this film is so. Uh, 
you know, of its own and unique and uh, something special. But I, I really believe that this is probably the first animated uh, superhero film that I've seen that couldn't be accomplished in live action. Um, and that that's pretty cool. I did. I was at Disneyland on Saturday and we were at Disneyland with I was Kitra and one of her friends, uh, Christina. And even though we were at the, you know, one of the happiest places on earth, we all decided let's go watch this movie. So I saw this movie for a third time over the weekend. Uh, this time I paid <laughs> and, uh, I, I still love this as much as I, it, this is my favorite movie of the year. So this is going to be on our probably <laughs> on our top 10 at the end of the year. I'm, I'm sure between all of us. Um, but, uh, and Ben, you've already talked about this, but we, 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 you did a bunch of interviews for this movie. We're going to do a special, we're going to record a special, uh, integrating those interviews and stuff for either later this week or next. Uh, it depends on how news is this week, but, uh, <laughs> you can read them on slash com. but, uh, look out for that. And, um, but speaking of Spider-Man, Chris, you also saw a Spider-Man movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I finally watched Venom because I got the, the Blu-ray uh, to review. And uh, man, oh, man. Um, all right. So first of all, this movie is terrible. This is a terrible movie. The screenplay is atrocious, like to the point where. <laughs> I'm having I have trouble believing like this was even like written like I feel like they just showed up and just started filming and just like did it on the fly like everything happens in this movie is so poorly planned out and poorly thought out and nothing really works but with all that said I kind of think Venom is worth watching just to see whatever it is that Tom Hardy is doing. I don't know what he's doing in this movie, but I've, it's one of those like go for broke performances where he's, he's like all in on it and everyone else around him just looks really befuddled. And they're always like trying to keep up with whatever the hell it is he's doing. And it's so strange. Like, I don't want to say it's over, over the top because it's not really over the top. It's just like, he just seems like he's out of his mind in this movie. And so I can't say I hated watching it because I enjoyed watching him act like a lunatic. Uh, but if he weren't in the movie, it would be, I would think it, it would be unwatchable, honestly. And I am shocked that this was such a huge hit. I don't know what the hell happened, but uh, obviously uh, I, I underestimated how much people really wanted to see a venom movie <sighs> so, I, I, yeah. i'm really curious if venom 2 will do nearly as well i think like a lot of people went into this my theory is chris that a lot of people like this character and then a lot of people went into this thinking that spider-man was going to be in it and that this was a marvel right. movie yeah yeah i guess so but like if that were true i feel like the the box office should have died down. Yeah. Like work now should have gotten out saying, never mind, this isn't that good. And instead, it just got better and better, which suggests people were seeing this and saying, Oh my God, you've got to see Venom. It's really good. And 
if that's what happened, I'm alarmed, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the way things go. I guess that's, that's where we are as a society where people are really excited to it, go see Adam. Is it possible that people were coming out of this and telling their friends, you got to see this movie because I don't believe it exists and what Tom Hardy's doing? Or do you think, do you think we're just doomed as a people? I, I honestly, all right. I do. I did not want to get into this because I'm just like, uh, <laughs> putting a target on my back, but, uh, Friday was the, the one year anniversary of the last Jedi. Oh, and no. I made, the, I made the foolish mistake of proclaiming my love for that movie on Twitter, which prompted, uh, so many people to go nuts and attack me. <laughs> and I, I'm not talking like when I say attack, it sounds like I'm being dramatic, but these were people like flinging, bile at me like they were like wishing i was dead because i i love the last jedi jesus christ and uh but right after i posted that tweet i posted another tweet about venom saying like boy this movie is bad and in addition to people yelling at me about the last jedi i had people coming into that tweet and saying you don't you like the last jedi but you hate venom boy you have poor taste so (laughs) at that point like, all right, I, I, I give up on everything. like, and this was, I had multiple people saying this, saying Venom is a better movie than the last Jedi. And you're nuts for not, no. No, I, there were several people who said this. So at that point I, I washed my hands of ever having a, an opinion again. So I'm retiring as of today. <laughs> so, so I regret even bringing this up because now people are going to hear this and yell at me some more. And uh, it's, it's exhausting. Um, you know, if you're still this upset about The Last Jedi a year later, I don't know what to tell you. You you really need to go into therapy and seek help because it's not healthy to be this angry about a movie. And I don't, I don't understand what the end game is here because, like, uh, do you think, like, jumping into my mentions and calling me names is going to make me be like, oh, you're right. The Last Jedi sucks. Like, I like, look, if you don't like The Last Jedi, that's fine. I but I don't give a shit. Like, keep it to yourself. I, I don't care. You don't have to yell at me about it. All right, I'm done. I'm done talking about that. <laughs> the, the weird thing here, Chris, is these people, I, I'm betting if you look, they're not people that follow you for the most part. No, the, I don't I don't know who any of these people are. They just, they found me somehow. I no, guess what, they just... What happens is they get, you. your tweet gets retweeted into their circle of like right. venom and then they go on an attack it's like this big mob and it's the same thing you see in like the circle of snyder fans and you know dceu and i don't understand how it exists like i almost want to believe that they're bots or something but you know it's so poorly written to be bots i don't know it's it's exhausting and i, I like i said i don't want to because i'm i'm literally like <laughs> i'm inviting them to come attack me more now but it, it, it lasted. I, I posted that tweet on Friday. It lasted three days. Like it just died down today, like all weekend. And I kept muting the tweets. And even then they kept finding ways <laughs> to, to catch my attention. And it, it, it's just, it's exhausting, man. Like just, just, you know, I don't care if you don't like the last Jedi. I love it. Like, you know, keep it to yourself. There's this weird belief on, on Twitter that, Things have to be debated. And I don't know where this idea comes from, where if someone said something, you, you have to like debate them. Like, no, like just, 
Like, I don't care. Like, leave me alone. That's, that's all I'm going to say. I'm, I'm done talking about The Last Jedi. I just don't understand why people on Twitter or any social media or even the real world can't let you or anyone have this thing that they love and like they try to ruin it like they, you enjoyed this movie and they have to yeah. rain on your parade and you're you're you don't love a lot of things chris it's <laughs> true trying to ruin I, it. <laughs> I love very few things and people um no yeah it's like like i said you know i talked about venom um you know i think that movie is bad but if i saw someone on twitter being like, Venom is the best movie ever. I would not jump into their replies and be like, you're an idiot. I'd be like, all right, whatever. It's like, just just let people have it. Like, yeah. what, what, you'd, you'd what? instead be like, unfollow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let me mute you so I never have to see you again. <laughs> what other movies did you watch this week, Chris? Um, I also watched The House That Jack Built, which is the, the latest Lars von Trier movie that – has been getting a lot of uh, controversial buzz. It, it premiered at Cannes, and it got a very polarizing reaction there. And then they, they did a screening of the, the director's cut for one night only. And then they got in trouble with the MPAA. There was, there was a whole thing. So the, the R-rated cut is now uh, available to rent. And uh, from what I hear, I have not seen the director's cut. From what I hear, though, they're almost identical. The director's cut is like five minutes longer, and it just includes just like a few more, you know, things here and there. So they're not that drastically different. So um, I, I I liked it. Um, you know, I, I I've seen very polarizing reactions to this. Some people think it's it's an abomination. Some people think it's good. Uh, I think I'm somewhere like in the middle. I. Uh, it's, it's a little too long. It's like two hours and 30 minutes, uh, which you know, is pushing it. And it is a very unpleasant film because it's, it's, you know, Matt Dillon plays a serial killer and we follow him through his life as he, you know, commits some very heinous things, heinous acts. So it's definitely not, you know, the type of movie for everyone. Um, I will say that, you know, I was expecting it to be a little more graphic than it was. Not that it's not graphic. There are a few very graphic moments of the film, but a lot of the violence happens uh, sort of off screen. So I was expecting this like extreme uh, splatter punk movie. And that's not what it is. It's a little more, I don't use the word classy because it's not (laughs) really a classy movie, but it's a little more highbrow than that. Um, But you know, it's, it's good. It's not as bad as I've heard it is. It's not as good as as I've heard it is either, but it's, if you like, Lars von Trier movies, I think you'll enjoy this. I like some of his films. I really like Antichrist. I really like Melancholia. I did not really care for Nymphomaniac, but uh, this is pretty much in line with most of his films. Well, very cool. And uh, you also saw Bird Box, which I'm not even sure what this movie is. I see these billboards around Los Angeles for it. Uh, This is a Netflix Uh, original? Yes. So Bird Box is based on a novel, I believe, Jacob read the novel and he talked about it in the past on, on another water cooler episode. Uh, it's bird box is now playing in uh, like a few theaters in New York and LA. And then on the 21st, it hits Netflix for everyone. Um, it's, it's set in this, it's like this post-apocalyptic story where there are these, these creatures that if you see them, they, they drive you insane. It's, it's like a Lovecraftian thing where like, the, you know, they're beyond comprehension and they, you know, they make you kill yourself basically. And uh, the, the story is set in two different time periods. One is like directly after, you know, the, the event happens. And one is in the future where Sandra Bullock is traveling uh, 
down this river with two children in tow. And, you know, they're wearing blindfolds because, you know, they don't want to see the, the force and all, you know, so, so it's, it's okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the premise is really cool. And I think there's, you could have done something really neat with the premise. And the problem is the movie is kind of, uh, it's kind of like by the numbers, like it's very derivative of a dozen other movies. Like if you've seen the mist or if you've seen even like uh, the happening, this movie has a lot in common with that, even like plot details. Like there's a plot detail in this movie where one character is in the middle of a lawsuit with his neighbor over like some sort of property line. And that's literally in the mist to the point where I'm wondering if it was just put in there as a direct reference to it. I, I, I don't know like how else to explain it, but um, you know, it, it's it's okay. It's watchable. Sandra Bullock is good. It's got some generally creepy moments in it. Like when when it's hitting the horror, it, it does that really well. But everything in between the horror uh, is a little lacking. But uh, I, I liked it for the most part. Well, very cool. And I have a review on SlashFilm.com. Go, please go click that review. Thank you. We will link that in the show notes. Uh, let's move on to what I've been watching. I've been still playing end of the year catch up. So between, uh, you know, me going to Disneyland and watching Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse way too many times, uh, I've also, you know, been spending time at home trying to catch up on screeners and uh, movies that are for rent uh, on iTunes. Uh, one of those was Love, Simon. Um, this is a movie by Greg Berlanti. Berlanti? Berlanti. Yeah, Berlanti. Uh, he's the screenwriter of Green Lantern. He directed Life as We Know It. Uh, he's responsible for a lot of TV, including Everwood and a bunch of those DCCW stuff that I don't watch and I judge from a distance, even though everybody tells me it's good. They're good, Peter. I don't know. judge them. I know, I know, Most I know. Part, they're good. But he was also responsible for Green Lantern. So I have, uh, you know, when this film came out, I was kind of thinking, you know, I kind of had low expectations for this, yet I am a sucker for high school movies, coming of age movies, you know, high school set, uh, you know, romance films. Uh, and uh, this one is uh, surprising. It's surprisingly good. It's um, I think what makes this uh, better than your average high school movie is that it's not just a high school rom- romance. There is a mystery involved. He's like trying to figure out who this person he's playing kind of like a virtual pen pal a game of pen pal with is um this has so much heart and humor like almost like a john hughes film it's charming it manages to feel uh fresh and smart while still sticking to kind of like that traditional formula um you know probably this is i'm guessing this is probably the first mainstream uh gay romance film Maybe am I am I wrong about that? At least said in high school, right? No, you're right. Because that's what yeah. the a lot of the um the sort of the attention and the acclaim around this movie was about. And, and I I anticipated that this film was going to kind of make itself about that and kind of play up, you know, oh coming out to your parents and stuff. And I was kind of surprised that this movie, um you know, plays with the same themes that other high school movies play with, you know, being alone in the crowd, you know, all the traditional stuff. And it's not to say that this isn't uh, a love story from a gay uh, point of view. 
and it doesn't give that a different energy. It does, but I was surprised at how much. Um, I'm trying to find a way to put this that it wasn't manipulative and not taking advantage of that kind of like, oh, we're the first one to do this and the you know, and we're gonna play that up. It wasn't heavy handed, it you know, it wasn't, it, it's not a thing, and it just is. And I, I don't know, I kind of love that, and it, it just felt so, uh, I don't know, it, it's great to see this kind of representation in Hollywood, it's the way it should be, and it's, uh, it's a movie that made me laugh, made me cry. Uh, I was so surprised by this movie. Uh, has anybody else seen Love Simon here? I have. I really liked it when it came out. And yeah, I think that it feels revolutionary in the fact that it normalizes like this LGBT experience and into a film that is just kind of a more typical and almost formulaic uh, teen rom-com. And in in that way, it feels all the more revolutionary. And uh, it's it's so heartwarming and it's so sweet. And and I think for a while, it was like one of my favorite movies of the year, like uh, halfway through, but it's still, it's, it still packs like a good punch. Like it, some people could criticize it as being a little bit um, like saccharine at some point. And yes, it does get a little bit in that way. But I think the fact that it feels so universal while dealing with this very specific story uh, is what makes it so appealing. Yeah. I think right now it might be in my top 10. Uh, and, and I do understand people that would criticize this movie. Like you said, it's, I mean, it is very formulaic and it is very whatever, but it just does it so well. Um, yeah, I think that I saw it too. I, I actually I watched it on a flight, um, and I think that's what kept me from really falling in love with it is that it felt a little too formulaic. But at the same time, I I did appreciate that it was like it, it was a gay romance that was finally able to do like be a cliche romantic comedy because we have really haven't seen anything like that and so it's still innovative in that way despite being formulaic but it it's still also simultaneously kept me from really like loving it as much as i otherwise might have yeah it, it, it definitely is trying to appeal more to a broad audience it's not like a sundance film um i uh what else did i see i saw you know speaking of sundance i saw hearts beat loud uh, which stars nick offerman as a single dad a, a brooklyn hipster who uh, starts a band with this teenage daughter and just before she leaves home to attend college. And uh, without her knowing, he uploads a song to Spotify. And that song gains some traction and complicates things, I guess. I guess that's probably the plot synopsis for this film. This film did play at Sundance. Um, and it does definitely feel like the typical Sundance movie, the kind of movie I love watching there. I'm a sucker for this kind of film, just as I'm a sucker for the, you know, coming of age uh, film. Uh, this is so uh, earnest and warm. Uh, Kirstie Clemens, who plays the daughter, is awesome in this. I've loved her since seeing her in uh, 2015's Dope. I think she's going to have a huge career. Uh, you know, Nick Offerman does his thing. Uh, I really did like the score for this film and I would recommend people seeing this, but I, I also think that this doesn't do anything like, you know, too out of the norm. It, it, like if you've seen this kind of Sundance movie before, then, you know, you kind of know what this is, you know, what you're getting yourself into. Brad, did you see this at Sundance or was it Ben? I did. No, yeah, no, we both did actually. And we, uh, we talked about it semi recently cause I think Jacob watched it recently. Yeah, I saw it last week. Um, yeah, I, I think what makes it stand out uh, makes it a little bit better than your average uh, sort of 
uh, in the you know somewhat dysfunctional estranged family um, movie is that the soundtrack is really good because of the original songs that Nick Offerman and Kiersey Clemens performed together. Yes. And like the specificity of those scenes where they actually go through the motions of physically recording that stuff as somebody who, you know, messes around with music in my spare time, that stuff really rang true to me, too. And that's rare to see in a movie. And most of the time, movies don't really take the time to get those little details right. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, no, I, I definitely recommend people check it out. It's it's probably in the top 20 percent of this year. Um, another film I saw was Leave No Trace. Uh, this is a movie starring Ben Foster and I'm going to pronounce this name wrong. Thomason McKenzie. Yes, sounds you, sounds, you sounds more like a guy name than a girl name. So that's I thought, the name of the, the the character in The Witch, Thomason. Oh, okay, Thomason. Um, fantastic performances from both of those uh, actors. Uh, this movie is about Ben Foster, who is a veteran suffering from. Uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and he's, um, he kind of is raising his daughter in the woods. They don't want, he doesn't want to live in a normal, you know, house environment. He homeschools her. And, uh, I guess the, I guess the inciting incident is when someone finds them in the woods and that sends their lives into complete disarray. Um, this movie goes in directions you might not anticipate um it's heartbreaking but not dire it's about homelessness it's about uh i don't it 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 has some good performances i i'm not loving it as much as other people i think did this year has anybody else here seen this movie i have um i really love this movie this might be one of my top uh, movies of the year actually but I think it was just so profoundly like affecting and quiet that uh, it it left a, a big impact on me yeah. I, I I do like it I highly recommend it again I would say this in the top 20% of the year uh, and the performance is great I think Thomason uh, Mackenzie I think has a big future I think she she was great in this film and uh, yeah that that is all between that and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse for a third time, that is all that I watched this week. So, uh, Brad, in addition to Spider-Man, what did you see? I didn't see Spider-Man multiple times like you did, but I did see another superhero movie uh, that I wasn't necessarily excited to see, but just felt obligated to see to see exactly how it turned out. Uh, and I went to the Amazon Prime sneak peek screening of Aquaman over the weekend. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed this movie. It's not great, but the action and visuals are entertaining enough that I was having a lot of fun with it. Jason Momoa is really good uh, as Aquaman. He's just this this cool sort of, you know, bro Aquaman, and he doesn't feel like a douchebag. He just feels like a, you know, laid-back whatever kind of guy who's like, sure, I'll be a king, whatever. Um, and it's, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with it. There are... Definitely a handful of stupid, movie-stopping, terrible moments in this movie that it's just like, ugh, why why did this happen? Uh, including and not limited to a music video-esque slow-motion shot of Aquaman and Mira walking onto a beach from the ocean set to the tune of Pitbull's awful cover of Toto's Africa, uh, which is a real thing I said and actually exists. Um, but otherwise I, there's, there's a lot of really fun things in this movie and it's, it's, it, it was, I just had a good time watching it. Um, there, but like I said, 
there are several bad things that made me laugh and took me out of the moment that keep it from being really great. But it's easily one of the uh, more enjoyable experiences as far as DC comic movies are concerned. And it's, uh, it's, it's, I, I, would, I would say it's a little bit more enjoyable than Wonder Woman only because it's more fun and Wonder Woman is more somber. But Wonder Woman is definitely a much better crafted movie. Do you think the worst parts of this are worse than Wonder Woman, or would it, how do, how does that compare? The worst parts of this are definitely worse than the worst parts of Wonder Woman. Um, but I think that the where, where Aquaman succeeds is I think the action is crafted in a much more impressive and visually stunning way, as opposed to the action in Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman does have some great action moments. Uh, including the No Man's Land sequence, but where it stumbles is in that third act, and I think the third act of Aquaman really delivers some great uh, epic action. Ben, you also saw Aquaman this week. I did, and I didn't like it nearly as much as Brad. I, I felt like the the moments that he was talking about where it's sort of the movie grinds to a halt and like all the formulaic aspects, that's the stuff that I really like took away from the movie. That's the stuff that hit me the most. I, I didn't particularly care for Momoa because I felt like his character, like there wasn't much of a character there behind his uh, sort of like shruggy charisma, his, his bro-y attitude. I, I felt like I was never really able to latch on to him as a character and, and like get behind him and, and try to, uh, I guess, root for him, for lack of a better term. Um, the, you know, there is I, I feel like in every shot of this movie, there is 40 percent too much happening. <laughs> like the, there is just so much going on in the background of every shot, like all of the establishing shots of the underwater cities and all of that stuff. It is just like visual overload. And. I mean, I, I love guess it, that it's like Avatar meets Tron Legacy. Uh, it I it is, that, and I got that vibe several times too, where I, I, I just the world just felt really full and complete to me, and I really like that. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a perfect example of how this works for some people and just did not for me because I, I felt like I, I wanted to, you know, be um, in awe at the scene or at the production design and like the the visual effects and all that stuff, but I, I just felt like. And this makes me sound so old, <laughs> but I just felt like there was too much happening. Like, slow it down a little bit, you know, take 40% of that away and actually let me focus on some of these things. And maybe I would have uh, been, I would have experienced that awe that I think the movie wanted me to feel. But, um, and then just, you know, all of the character dynamics, all of the dialogue, everything just felt so by the book to me. And and there wasn't the the few action moments that James Wan really like steps it up and, and uh, makes interesting. were not nearly enough to um, to overwhelm the rest of the, the, the movie for me. I think every part of this is way worse than anything in, in Wonder Woman. But that's just me. Oh, you know, wow. this is uh, this is well, I mean, yeah, like the even okay okay I'll, I'll based on your reaction there peter i think <laughs> i think i should probably uh, amend that to say that like the final battle in wonder woman is as we've mentioned many many times not very good the some of the one take action scenes in this are better than that but in terms of like the characters and the but you don't the think things even I, like black manta it's a better villain than you know the villain um, in wonder woman which i guess just, i won't spoil he just gets sidelined so quickly and disappears for a huge chunk of the movie that, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, he 
he would be a better villain if he were the primary villain. I know that's something yeah. that you said. Uh, the- yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, actually, because I because I did like uh, him in the role. What's what's his name? Uh... Man, I don't remember the actor's name off the top of my head, but he, he I mean, his performance was great. And like, I actually liked the the setup and everything in the submarine in the beginning where you sort of like really understand the formation of him and, and sort of why he does what he does. I felt like that was one of the best parts of the movie, actually, because it's one of the few times that they really stopped to establish clear motivations that actually made sense to me. Uh, and the rest of it is just sort of like this mishmash hodgepodge of like Indiana Jones set pieces that like feel like they don't belong in this kind of a story. And a lot of just run of the mill stuff that you would expect uh, an algorithm to write, you know, <laughs> as just like plug in superhero cliches here. And the movie just sort of leans into those. And yeah, it has a an octopus that plays the drums, but like that's only in the movie for one second. And if there were, I don't know, more moments of specificity and instead of these cliches, then I think I would have reacted a lot better to it, but I, I just, this movie was not for me. The actor who plays Black Manta is uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II. Oh, um, awesome. Yeah, and all, um, one other thing that I forgot to say, too, is that, uh, one thing that I was kind of surprised by in this movie is the action in this movie, when it comes to the fight sequences, felt so much more hard-hitting than any other superhero movie I've seen in recent memory. Like, uh, I don't know if it was the sound uh, design that did this or what, but uh, you feel like the hits whenever Aquaman like punches or slams somebody into something. And there's also some surprisingly gruesome deaths and sequences too, where like whether it's a monster that's like getting uh, you know shot by a, a harpoon gun or a person getting torn in half by another monster. Um, I was surprised by how how much James Wan pushed it, and like it seems like he brought a little bit of the horror sensibilities to this movie in that, which I which felt a little refreshing to me. No, I I think I am more leaning towards what Brad is saying here with his reaction, but I I, I don't know. I feel like even I was kind of not as positive on this movie as HT and some of the other people uh, who saw this film. Uh, anyways, uh. Brad, I mean, yeah, Brad, what else have you been watching? Uh, I also took the time to, uh, I, I've been trying to catch up on some more low-key releases that are only playing at a distance from me right now over in Chicago. So I went into uh, to the city yesterday to check out Ben is Back, uh, which is a, a harrowing tale of this family over the span of basically 24 hours where Lucas Hedges uh, plays this kid who comes back ho- uh, home for Christmas from a rehab center he's at where he's get- being treated for drug addiction. Um, and it's a total surprise to his family. His mother played by Julia Roberts. and But the family's kind of concerned about him being back because this has happened a couple times before where he's come back and kind of ruined their holidays because he's uh, a serious addict. And there are dangerous people who he has he had surrounded himself with before. And it's just, it's a it's a very anxiety-inducing, dramatic, emotional movie. Uh, Lucas Hedges and Julie Roberts are fantastic in it. The The way the story plays out over the 24 hours as he's trying to kind of be comfortable with his family and resist, like, his temptation to fall into the old way of, like, you know, finding drugs or, like, even just the craving of it and how his family kind of tiptoes around him and is also very cautious and anxious about, you know, him relapsing and there's just there's a there's a lot to it and it's just uh i i really liked it a lot it was very um it was very compelling 
very well acted, and it's uh, it's definitely a, a harder hitting movie. Um, I'd also be interested to find out whether or not uh, Jacob thinks this is a Christmas movie or not, because it is entirely set at Christmas and unfolds across Christmas Eve into Christmas Day. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I was very impressed by it, and I, I think it. Um, Lucas Hedges and Julie Roberts will probably be in the running for uh, awards for their performances because they were they're both phenomenal in this movie. Jacob, is it a Christmas movie, or you haven't seen I, it yet? I have not seen it. I, I will when I when I do watch it, I will report back. It's definitely not the kind of Christmas movie you're gonna want to watch every year. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like this is gonna be a regular thing where we ask if Jacob thinks or it makes the final judgment if something is a Christmas movie or not. Um, you also saw a movie I saw last week, Anna in the Apocalypse. Yeah, speaking of Christmas movies, um, I had been very interested to see this ever since it played uh, Fantastic Fest. Was it Fantastic Fest or was it South By? It Fantastic was Fantastic Fest, Fest last yeah. year. Yeah. Oh, last year even. Wow, crazy. So, yeah, I've, I've been waiting to see this just because the premise itself is so much so fun and something we haven't seen before. It is a high school set, Christmas set, uh, zombie apocalypse musical. Um, and it's uh, it's very fun and delightful, but I didn't love it as much as I was hoping to. Um, I really enjoy the soundtrack, and I like what they're going for, but I found myself wanting the movie to be a little bit more clever and original, and sure, it might be original enough to make an attempt at doing a holiday-themed high school musical where a zombie apocalypse is happening, but it felt like it kind of started to go off the rails a bit towards the end. And I feel like for as hard as it tries to earn a lot of emotional beats between the characters, I don't think it ever really fully makes you fall in love with any of the characters to actually be on board with any of the triumphs or struggles that they have as they have to face death and relationship struggles and and that kind of thing. Um, I, part of me wonders if maybe it's just I had this thought of that maybe just Shaun of the Dead is too perfect of a movie and I love it so much that it's kind of made it difficult for other movies that are in a similar genre and take a similar approach to actually land as well as they otherwise might if Shaun of the Dead didn't exist um, but I still I still had fun with it it's, it's one of those movies where it'll undoubtedly be a cult favorite for, for years to come um, and again, the, the original songs for this movie are, are quite great, but I, I do think it lost sight of the musical aspect a little bit in the middle and towards yeah. the end and then tried to pick it back up at the last minute and be like, oh, wait, this is supposed to be a musical. Yeah, I think uh, th- that first half, though, is so good. Like I was like in the movie for the ha- first half, like being like, this is going to be in my top half of the year. Like like uh, t- of my t- top ten list, and then that second half, I like you said, takes a nosedive. I'm almost curious what HT is going to think of this movie because I feel like that first half is so good with the high school stuff. And uh, I, driving to Disneyland, I was we were listening to the soundtrack. Uh, the, the the music in the movie is actually quite good. Um, I, you know, I tried listening to the Mary Poppins soundtrack. And I just couldn't do it. Um, so I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. Uh, but let's move on to Ben. Ben, besides Aquaman, what have you been watching? So I watched another pretty formulaic blockbuster, and that is Bumblebee. Um, I, I'll say right off the top, it's the best Transformers movie. I, like you, Peter, uh, like it even more than the first Transformers, which I don't find nearly as objectionable as many people. I feel like that's one of those that uh, that worked really well when it came out in 2007, and since then it's sort of been lumped in with the rest of the Transformers movies, but I feel like the first one's still pretty decent. Uh, this one gets back to 
the heart, which is something that I felt like Aquaman didn't have at all. But Bumblebee has a huge heart, and it's it's um, you know it, it's a story that you've seen a million times before, but just told with a, a Transformers. Uh, <laughs> skeleton over the top of it i guess um and it's uh you know Haley seinfeld is fun it's again it's like it's exactly what you want it to be if you're looking forward to this movie you're going to like it It, it's you know it's funny in all the right ways um but it's and the, the action is actually a lot smoother and cleaner than a lot of the michael bay transformers films so that was a pleasant surprise this is a step up in every way from all of the other uh, Transformers movies, even the first one, but um, yeah, again, it's 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 one of those that's so right down the middle that you can predict every beat, you know, minutes before it happens. Like it's it's very obvious <laughs> exactly what's going to happen and why and how. Um, so th- there's no surprise to this movie other than like, oh hey, it's a Transformers movie that's actually like pretty decent. Um, uh, so yeah, that's, that's Bumblebee. I don't know if anybody has any, anybody else has seen this one or has any other, uh, observations about it. I know Chris is not going to go see this and he's going to wait until home <laughs> video, despite everybody saying it's good. Yes. Or longer. I think, I think that's a good call, Chris. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I wanted to see it so he could be the one person that does not like this movie. I mean, I, I don't know if I would say, that I like, I guess I would say that I liked it. It's fine. It's fine. Um, okay, so moving on. Minding the Gap. This movie's on Hulu right now. I would recommend that people uh, check this out if you haven't seen it. It's really like, um, it's a very impressive piece of work. It's a little shapeless, I think. I, I wish it had a, a little bit more of a um, of a directness to the approach. It, it feels like it, it's a little... It's a little bit of a shaggy movie at times, um, but this documentary about a, a group of kids who grew up skateboarding together, and then uh, it, basically the the doc sort of uh, picks up with them years later and tracks the emotional toll and and uh, economic toll and really the like the toll overall that like uh, domestic abuse has played in their lives, and it's um, it's not quite as harrowing as that description makes it sound. Uh, there's some funny stuff in here. The, the tone is generally, you know, fairly light. Um, but then, but it, it also grapples with issues that I, I feel like are not really discussed in a, in a meaningful way in movies today. Um, the director Bing Liu is also, you know, he, he was one of these, this crew, the skateboarding crew, and he realized that, uh, his mom married this guy who, abused him when he was a kid and and that uh, affected him in such a way that he wanted to take a wider look not just at his small circle of friends but also this town in Illinois that they live and and try to figure out you know get to the root of what is going on with this issue and it's a it's a wide-ranging kind of thing it's uh but at the same time it's very specific to this group of people it's very good i it's it's it sort of defies description in a lot of ways um like I said, I wish it, it had a little bit more of a punch to it in terms of like the way that the story is told and doesn't quite go off on so many t- little tangents. But uh, overall, I would I would recommend it. It's it's good. I, I don't think it's going to make like my favorite movies of the year, but um, but it's very good. And it's it's certainly one of the better documentaries that's out there and easily available right now. And that one's on Hulu. Um, 
I also saw Destroyer, which is the new Nicole Kidman movie that's coming up. I think that one comes to theaters on Christmas Day. Uh, I went to a film independent screening where Karen or Karen, excuse me, uh, Karen Kusama, the director, uh, was there afterwards, and she was there with the writers and talked about the movie. And it, I mean, it, it's a very, very good movie. I think uh, Nicole Kidman is phenomenal in this movie. She, it's like a, it's a modern LA noir where th- that is a. Uh, it takes place over par- parallel narratives where like uh, she's trying to track the events of a case that are that's happening in real time. And then it flashes back to when she was undercover working with the same uh, group of bad guys, basically. Um, and it's, it's a very straightforward kind of uh, no nonsense cop thriller uh, in the vein of like a Michael Mann kind of thing. So if you're, if you're, interested in those kinds of movies i feel like this one's really gonna um, stick out to you uh it's worth putting on your radar uh for nicole kidman's performance alone really um but sebastian stan is always is also really good in this movie too um and i I just really like what kusama did with this one it's it's a really solid la movie and um yeah i I liked the action there's a, a bank robbery sequence that's very effective and um yeah i just enjoyed this one a lot chris i know you you saw this one too right yeah, I saw that tiff and I, I loved it. I've actually just got really mixed reactions. Like almost everyone I talked to at TIFF said they didn't like it, but this oh, is really? actually this is in I think it's actually in my top ten. I, I, I really love this movie. Every everything you said I pretty much agree with hundred percent. Yeah, I had a similar reaction at Fantastic Fest where I was very much alone and thinking it was fantastic. So I think that what we've learned here is that Slash Film has the best taste. <laughs> yeah, there's yes. something in the in the Slash Film water cooler that makes us all <laughs> on board for this movie, I guess. Um, so moving on, I saw uh, Free Solo as well. And this one is still in some theaters. Uh, you'll have to check your local listings to see if it's in theaters near you still. But uh, it came out earlier this year. It is a documentary about a rock climber named Alex Honnold who tries to climb... El Capitan, which is this huge rock face in Yosemite National Park in California, uh, he climbs it without any rope. So that's that's the term free solo is just like climbing this thing um, without any protection at all. So like if you take one wrong step, you're dead. And there's a camera crew that's like on the mountainside with him. And I was almost as impressed with those guys as I was at the, you know, incredible uh, feat that this guy is trying to attempt of climbing this whole thing, uh, just because they're also climbing, but they're also filming. I mean, they have ropes, of course, but they're not uh, totally insane. But they um, they're also able to get some really incredible shots of this guy uh, performing what, you know, like this, this thing that no human should ever undergo. And it's super tense. My palms were sweating. The like, you know, it, it gave you it gives you like a visceral reaction. Um, it's very, very tense. And this is one of those documentaries that I feel like the subject matter is super interesting. But the documentary itself and the way it's actually constructed and put together left a little bit to be desired for me. So it's not like it's not an amazing documentary, but it's an amazing thing that the documentary is chronicling, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I would I would still even even though I have some qualms with the way the thing is put together and I, I sort of wish that they would give us more information along the way in terms of like how long it would take him to climb or, you know, how long has it taken him to get to this point or like some comparisons for size and things like that. Just like some sort of basic 
things to help you really understand the enormity of what he's actually doing. Um, even with my little qualms, I, I feel like I could easily recommend this to anybody. It's actually a, a National Geographic documentary, so I'm guessing it's going to be available maybe on the National Geographic channel or something like that at some point soon. So if you can't catch it in theaters, just, uh, I don't know, eventually search your DVR, see if you can find it there. Um, it's called Free Solo, and it, it's worth watching, I think. I, I uh, haven't seen this, but hearing your description of this, Ben, it doesn't seem heroic to do like this seems stupid this seems irresponsible to make that climb without any safety net of a like i understand like you know you want to do it by hand and not like use the rope to like Mm -hmm. you know rely on that tension and stuff that but he he literally has nothing to save him if he were to fall Yes, that's correct. <laughs> and they, they grapple with that. And the the movie grapples with that in the very beginning. Like one of the first things is like somebody uh, in a news interview saying, you wait. So let me get this straight. If you slip, you die. And he's like, yeah, you you got it. You understand what I'm what I'm going for here. Uh, and, you know, the guy it's it's much of a character study of the climber as it is. Uh, a chronicling of his attempt to do this totally insane thing that, by the way, no human has ever done before. Um, so. Yeah, it's interesting in the like I said in the subject matter. I wish that the execution was a little bit better, but yes, it does get into some of the mentality and some of the um, you know <laughs> the, the reasoning behind why somebody would attempt to do something crazy like this. What would they have done if he did fall and die? The that's one of the other things that I really liked about the documentary is that it it. Uh, takes a step back and looks at it interviews the camera people and shows the um the cameraman and the the director i think or co-director like it shows them on camera talking about how nervous they are about doing this because they they don't want to be responsible for putting the camera in a certain place that would distract him and maybe cause him to slip up and fall off and die and like that it's it's a really really tense uh, suspenseful documentary that I, I think you guys would probably like it. There's, like I said, there's some small quibbles with it, but for the most part, I think it's it's definitely worth watching. It's like uh, it's a pretty brisk watch, and um, the the uh, subject matter it's 96 minutes long, so it's not it's not asking too much of your time, and the subject matter is just so fascinating. And like I said, that visceral reaction, like I was my wife and I watch us sitting at home on the couch together, but I was like watching it through my fingers for a lot of it because it's just so insane. Some of the shots are able to get cool. What, what else have you been watching? Uh, I caught up with the favorite, which I know a lot of people talked about last week on the podcast. I won't go too long on that. I thought this movie was hilarious. I was really, I I, I was a big fan of the lobster, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos's movie from a few years ago. And this one is way funnier than that. And uh, so I really appreciated that part of it. Um, I, I think all of the, performances are really good i was talking to my wife afterwards and i was like you know this is kind of this is the definition of like a uh oh yeah it's really good but i a movie where it's like okay this is a this is a solid 7.5 but i just won't watch this again i feel like it doesn't have any rewatchability and i'm glad that i saw it but it's not anything that i'm like oh man i can't wait to to go back and revisit that and not that that's like the end-all be-all of like what makes a movie good or anything like that but it just um 
you know, I, I, like I said, I'm glad I saw it. I think the performances are all very good. It has some. But you do realize you are in the minority here. Yes, Most people course. think this is one of the best, like, if not the best movie of the year, one of the best movies of the year. Yeah, yeah. And I think if I were making a list, it would probably be like in my top 15 or something. Um you know, maybe like number 15, if I were to actually make that list, I haven't done that yet, but, uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I just don't think I, I'm not head over heels for it in the way that uh, several people seem to be where it's like, you know, top three of the year or anything like that. I, I just think, um, the script, the, the writing is so great. All of the, the insults and the, the, uh, cutting lines by Rachel Weiss's character are, uh, you know, so much fun to watch. Um, the movie actually, I think has some, I'm, I'm really grappling with it still. Cause I just saw it a couple days ago and I'm trying to wrap my head around its larger meanings and like what it's really about and really trying to say. So maybe I'll end up liking it more in retrospect once I, I sort of really settle on what I think the movie is trying to say and, and do. Um, but in, you know, just on a surface level, I really enjoyed what I saw. Um, and maybe it'll, yeah, like I said, maybe it'll rise in my estimation once I, if I come up with like some ultimate reading of the movie that I haven't I haven't landed on yet but um yeah it's definitely worth checking out if anybody's uh on the fence about the favorite it's it's got some really really good stuff in it and that one's in theaters right now too uh and then lastly I saw Roma which is available on Netflix I know it's I, I feel bad because I'm living in LA which is one of the few cities where it's playing in theaters and I just I couldn't bring myself to pay, you know, $45 or whatever to go see the movie with my wife in theaters when we have it, uh, especially because our theatrical experience at the favorite was so like this woman fell asleep in front of us in the row in front of us and was snoring during the movie. People, the guy next to me had his phone out the whole time. So it was like, ah, do we really want to do that again? No, let's just stay home and watch this on Netflix. So we watch Roma and, uh, it's very, very good. It's, um, you know, I, I think this is one of the movies that people are saying, like, is one of the films of this year. And uh, I was listening to the DGA podcast. The Directors Guild of America has a podcast. And uh, Alfonso Coron, the director, was being interviewed by Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu, And Inaritu was saying that when he watched Roma, it felt to him like uh the beginnings of a river it was like the movie begins with a, a single drop of water and then slowly more and more more water accumulates and it just becomes by the end it becomes this full uh flowing river and i feel like that's a really good way to describe my relationship with this movie i, I feel like it took me a while to really understand the film's rhythms and then once something i'm not even going to say what it is happens to the lead character this this big event happens to her and she experiences this this huge life-changing thing i was like fully on board with it for the whole rest of the movie but it, it took a little while to get there so um i don't know i would say be patient with this one if you're if you're watching it and sort of like if you feel antsy in the beginning of it i, I would say give it time because it, it deserves your full attention see i feel like the last two movies you mentioned um, are very indicative of how I felt about this year. And I, I, we'll discuss this later when we do our top 10 episode. But I feel like there's a lot of really good movies that I don't really want to rewatch. Like, yeah, Roma I, is, I, a, is, is a great movie. I would even say that's a great movie. But I don't think, you know, I'll rewatch it in 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And that's, again, like I was saying before, just because something is, is not rewatchable doesn't make it yeah. really uh, like <laughs> lower in, in quality or anything. But I, I agree. There's something 
you know, it's all about what you value as a movie watcher. And I tend to value things that are, you know, fun and breezy and and light and uh, easily rewatchable. So but, you know, that's just one aspect of uh, of a thing that I like as a as a movie yeah. watcher. So, yeah, certainly I, I won't be returning to the favorite or Roma anytime soon. But um, but uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed them both. Yeah, I love stories that I can revisit over and over again. Uh, H.T., what have you watched this week? So I haven't watched uh, Caught Up with quite that many uh, new films this week for some reason. But I did catch a Netflix original film that came out this year. And um, I featured it on my pop culture imports column. If you guys want to read that, maybe drop that in the show notes. But it's um, an Italian uh, fantasy film that is, um, I feel like hasn't got as much attention, um, awards attention or like, best of the year attention because of all of the hype that's surrounding Roma. But if anything, it deserves um, just as much um, as Roma. It's such a strange, offbeat, surreal film. Um, it's kind of like Italian neorealism meets magical realism and wrapped up in this Rip Van Winkle tale about this 20-year-old sharecropper named Lazaro who is incredibly naive and um, just a very happy person, as the title indicates, and one day falls off a cliff and wakes up uh, like 20 years later unaged and um, discover, uh, re like um, uh, reunites with all the other sharecroppers who he worked with and uh, discovers that the world has, in his absence, kind of become more grimy and um, grim and much more like real, like like reality has set in. But it maintains this weird magical realism to the film, despite kind of becoming like this anti-capitalist manifesto. Uh, it's really good. It's very strange, but I liked it quite a lot, and it's definitely like a modern day fairy tale meets like the Italian neorealism films of the sixties or seventies. So it's, it's good. It's on, um, it's on Netflix. And uh, I, I've been saying this, I feel like I've been saying this a lot this episode, but it might end up on my top movies of the year just because it's so, it's so up my alley. I, I've talked before about how much I love fairy tales and magical realism. And this really captures that, um, just uh, sort of stream of consciousness, ma magical realism type of genre. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's on Netflix. And then I watched another film that uh, was not from this year, but is I. <laughs> it was I didn't get to see Spider Man into the Spider Verse, but I did end up writing a column about the most beautiful animated films of all time. And one the. My number one pick was a film I just saw uh, right before I wrote this column, and it's called The Garden of Words. It's directed by Makoto Shinkai, who directed the um, last year's mega hit anime, Your Name. And uh, it's definitely the most beautiful film that he's ever made. He's He has a tendency to... Um, depict uh, like mundane sort of settings in this photorealistic manner that makes like re regular Tokyo streets look just magical and enchanting and just like the most beautiful thing. And uh, it, the garden of words follows um, these two people, a 15 year old teenage uh, student boy, a uh, boy student and a um, 27 year old woman who keep accidentally meeting at uh, this garden on rainy mornings when they take shelter from the rain. And uh, it kind of, 
follows their frequent um, kind of coincidental meetings and their relationship as they sort of, you know, come to know each other and stuff. And uh, it's it's a very short, simple and quiet film, but the animation is just stunning. And the way that uh, Makoto Shinkai depicts rain on screen is probably the most beautiful way I've ever seen rain in live action or in animation, uh, which just sounds like a weird thing to comment on, but it's just a gorgeous film. And I, I highly recommend it. It's only 40 minutes long, too. If you ever want to oh, check wow. it out. So it's not even yeah. really a feature film. It's not really a feature film, but it was released as a feature film. Yeah. Uh, but it's more like a short film. Okay, I have a question um, for you because most yeah. Americans, sadly, probably will only see at most one animated anime film a year. Mm-hmm. Is this the film of this year? Oh, the anime film of this year. So Garden of Words is an older film, um, and so it didn't come out this oh, year. Oh, it didn't come out but, this year. Sorry. No, it didn't come out this year. Uh, the anime film I would recommend this year is um, Mirai, directed by Mamoru Hosoda, yes. who directed The Girl Who Left Their Time. And, uh, you talked the boy about in the this piece. in the past episode, right? I have yeah. talked about this in the past. So that would be the film I recommend this year. It's really great. It's so it's funny and kooky and also very tender and contemplative. Um, and so I that's the one I recommend for this year uh, if you were to catch an anime film. Yeah, it's, a, it's so. on my to-do list because of you. Yes. Yeah. Um, Watch it, it, everyone. <laughs> yeah. And you've also been doing uh, some other hol- hol- holiday rewatching. Yes. So uh, I know this is a film that Ben uh, sincerely hates, but (laughs) (laughs) it's a movie that I love to watch every year and um, every Christmas rather. And uh, my friends and I had gathered to kind of do a watch of it and introduce it to some of our other friends who had never seen it before. Uh, Two guys, of course, and uh, they enjoyed it. You're talking about Love Actually. I don't think you said that. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I forgot to say it. Love Actually. (laughs) <laughs> they enjoyed it, Ben. It's not like a good movie by any means, and it's intensely problematic by today's standards. But it's just so fun and charming, and it's got such a great cast. And um, Richard Curtis, uh, the director of this film, who directs uh, other rom-com classics like Notting Hill, Four, Four Weddings and a Funeral, I think is able to put together this ensemble in a way that it it is much more like put together and seamless rather than like all the other ensemble movies that came out in the wake of this film. And uh, yeah, while some of them, some of these, the segments don't, uh, don't really, you know, hold up today. It's still such a fun rom-com escapist film. And that's what I want in, in a rom-com. So uh, all these little vignettes with great actors, just enjoying their time and, you know, delivering some, truly truly like ridiculous lines i am going to take a uh, take chris's advice here since he he's the <laughs> one who runs an advice corner after all and just uh sit back and let you let you have this one i'm not going to jump into Thanks, your mentions ben. about this i'm just going to say i'm glad you enjoyed your rewatching of love actually i'd like Thanks. to add that i am uh, on ht's side with this because i also really enjoy rewatching love actually around the holidays despite the fact that some things haven't aged well i, I just love the cast and there's there's some really fun stuff in it so there you have it. Ben does not love love. And um, <laughs> let's move on to what we've been eating. 
Uh, as you know, I've been on this weird uh, keto diet for the last two months. I've lost almost 30 pounds at this point. Uh, I'm not going to bore you with the diet, but there's been a few things I've been, I discovered this week that I want to share for those of you who might be trying to eat less carbs or less sugar. I discovered this ice cream called Rebel Creamery Ice Cream, and this is something you can find um, – I got it at Lawson's, which is kind of like this almost like uh, upscale Whole Foods kind of place. Um, but th- they have it at a bunch of supermarkets. You can order it from their website. And this is a, a cream-based ice cream. Uh, it's very creamy. It's five to eight carbs per serving. That's a f- one-fourth of the pint. Um, it uses uh, some sugar alcohols that don't uh, affect your blood sugar levels. Um, it's the closest to ice cream I've tried on a you know that has a low carb diet i actually think i might like it better than halo top and it's a lot less carbs than halo top it still is not ice cream so i'm sure brad would try it and be like bullshit but um but if you're trying to eat better i highly recommend this my favorite flavors are peanut butter fudge and mint chocolate chip although they do have a cookie dough and uh, coffee chip uh which i have not tried so, um, yeah, check out uh, Rebel Creamery. I'll link it in the show notes. And the other thing I discovered, uh, Target started selling Quest frozen pizzas. Uh, you might know Quest because they produce these uh, Quest bars, which are kind of like these low-carb meal replacement bars, which I like. Um, actually, Jacob was the one that uh, turned me on to those. And, uh, and now they produce these uh, frozen cheese pizzas. It's a thin crust uh, cheese pizza. They have a bunch of different flavors. I, I mean, a bunch of different varieties. The one I like is the four cheese pizza. It's six net carbs per serving, uh, 330 calories. So that's like a half a pizza. So if, you, if you're going to be realistic, you're probably going to eat the full small pizza. And that's like 12 carbs and, you know, 600 calories. Still not that bad. Um, I, I, you know, this isn't going to compete with your local pizza delivery uh, of your choice, but this is better than any of the frozen pizzas I've ever had. And I've had some bad frozen, I've had some good frozen pizzas and some bad frozen pizzas. So I'd highly recommend this. You can get it at Target. It's called Quest Pizza. It's in their frozen aisle. Brad, what have you been eating recently? Nothing too special, but I did get my hand on a new uh, Ghirardelli Chocolate Squares flavor. It's uh, Toffee and Cookie Crunch. Um, if you've seen the Ghirardelli chocolate squares around, you, you know what what these are. Um, every holiday season, they they have certain flavors that come back, like the the peppermint bark ones, and uh, like there's a peppermint brownie one, I think, as well. There, there's several ones that only come out around the holidays. This is a new one that they released for the winter season, um, and it's pretty good. It's got a, a nice crunch to it. It has just enough toffee in it to give it a nice uh, toffee flavor without being overpowering. Um, I like that it has a little less toffee than like a Heath bar would because sometimes a Heath bar can be a little too uh, chewy because of how much toffee is in it. Um, so, yeah, it's the, the, the toffee and cookie is a nice mix with the Ghirardelli chocolate, which is always delicious. So, uh, yeah, if you can find these in like other – I found mine in the seasonal section uh, at Target, and I, they should, should be able to find them in any of the seasonal candy sections at whatever store you get your holiday candy from. Very cool. Uh, let's move on to our last section, and that's what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing this week? Not playing anything, but designing a game, and or specifically designing a game session. Uh, when I go home for the holidays, uh, 
my brother, his wife, my sister, and her husband all wanted to play tabletop RPG. So I'm bringing Scum and Villainy, which is a sci-fi game, and I'm going to design a one-session uh, one adventure for everybody to go on. If you remember from a long time ago on this podcast, talk about a game called Blades in the Dark, a fantasy adventure game. And Scum and Villainy is a hack of that game, which is RPG talk for it. It takes the basic skeleton of Blades in the Dark and adds a new theme, adds new elements, and takes all the really satisfying mechanics, stuff that make Blades in the Dark such an incredibly satisfying and fun to play game. But instead of making it dark fantasy, it puts you in a spaceship and lets you fly around the galaxy. Uh, there's a bounty hunter. Uh, criminals or as rebels going in all kinds of adventures and I'll have a full report on how this goes um, in a few weeks on the water cooler. If it goes poorly or if it goes well, I will report back. But I do know that um, if you want like a good RPG system, one that like is incredibly cinematic and keeps on upping the ante for tension and things going wrong in ways to keep the story going forward, uh, both blades and dark and scum and villainy are like, the same thing they're, they're both great just if you, if you prefer fantasy or sci-fi but i'll let you know how it goes how are they able to offer it i feel like disney must own the trademark for scum and villainy at this point right i don't know i mean it, my, 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 i would assume that uh i mean i would assume the, the authors chose that title knowing it would conjure those star wars feelings yeah but at the same time i don't know how disney can get away with conjuring something that's you know just a throwaway line of dialogue uh, and th- you know, two very common words. So, okay, I think this is officially the longest episode of the Water Cooler. We've gone over, I think, an hour and forty minutes at this point. So we're going to end it here. Uh, you can find more of all of our work on SlashFilm.com. You can find links to those features I mentioned in the show notes. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, question, comments, concerns or life advice from Chris uh, to peter at slashfilm.com. That's peter at slashfilm.com. And please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. <laughs> see, I need to get that no button. Like, I got to respond to I, I got to steal your no button. Long. <laughs> well, no button. I was found at Target, if that helps. <laughs> uh, I've opened up... Uh, Louis A. Safian's gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, as is tradition, grand tradition here on, on Slash Film Daily, to the boozers chapter. So I, I have uh, some great truths to reveal about all of your alcohol uh, habits. Who wants to go first? Me. Uh, <laughs> hey, Brad, you believe in a balanced diet, a highball in each hand. Oh, boy. I love that Ben volunteered, but I was the one who got shot first. <laughs> oh, I misunderstood that. I, I thought that was Brad. I guess I said it in a Bradish tone, so I could see the confusion. Well, I, I'll, do, I'll do Ben next, because at the party, he never plays spin the bottle, because he won't let go of it. <laughs> Damn. Well, HT, her eyes and nose are so red, the Communist Party sent her a membership card. <laughs> uh, that actually makes sense, because, like, Asian glow. <laughs> oh, Chris, he's an outstanding candidate for the Alcohol Hall of Fame. What? All right. Hall, Hall of Fame. Oh. Alcohol Hall uh, of Fame. Now I get uh, it. Alcohol. <laughs> Alcohol All right. of Fame. All right. Where's that no button? <laughs> oh, no. Okay. And finally, 
uh, Peter, the way liquor makes him fly, bartenders are asking him to land some other place. <laughs> All the time. Every week. I don't know. No. I... <laughs> no. I'm, so, I'm so drunk right now. Okay, guys. It, it's 2 p.m. We, we need to call an end to this water <laughs> We need to get back to work. We've been uh, recording since 11 a.m. I know. <laughs> we did take we did take a break though. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Does anybody have something funny to end this off with? No. No. <laughs> no. No. 